For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Behold, this is Fantastical Truth from Lorehaven. And if you're listening to this episode in the new heavens and new earth, well, that's an interesting choice. There could be better things for you to do outside. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, and we're hoping that this podcast is more than some mere relic from old earth. But despite our limits back here, before Jesus Christ returned and remade his creation, uh, back here with all the groaning and the viruses and such, we're still on mission to find truth and fantastic stories especially the stories made by Jesus's people. And we apply this truth to the real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. He is coming quickly, by the way, and he has promised that he is making all things new, as it says in Revelation 21.5. And I'm Zachary Russell, which is the name under which I pin my hopefully eternally lasting stories. But please just call me Zach. This is episode 14. What if Jesus promised to redeem not just people in his creation, but also great stories? Those earlier promises we quoted before this episode's intro come from these biblical texts, Isaiah 65, 17 to 18 and 21 to 22, and Revelation 21, 22 to 26. We've had a lot more to say about these texts in the earlier episodes in this series, which we are calling Epic Resurrection. You may have already heard parts one and two, which I believe are episodes 12 and 13 of Fantastical Truth. In the first episode, we explored how Jesus's resurrection body is the template for the promised resurrection of believers. We're not going to fly up to a a sky somewhere uh, and float around, uh, but we will actually have our own bodies made anew. We ourselves will see the face of God, we and not someone else. In the second part there, uh, we expanded outward and talked about how that promised resurrection of the human body is echoed in the renewal of new earth. Uh, The old earth will be fire purged. The whole creation will be purged by fire and then passed through as if refined, and it will be made new. uh, The union of new heavens that touches down in Revelation 21 to new earth to make a completely new unified world in which God's people will live forever and go on adventures and glorify him in everything they do. Stephen, I'll tell you someone who is really looking forward to the new earth, and that's my third daughter, and she's currently five years old. Lately, whenever she's gotten in trouble, she's said the most hilarious thing. She'll blurt out, I just hate this sinful earth. And it's like she's mad that she's trapped in a sinful body in a fallen world, and she just can't wait for the glorious new earth and her own resurrected body that's free of sin. And Other times she'll say, why can't I be in heaven right now? Why did Jesus leave me here? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's just so intense. And my wife, who's trying not to laugh, will say, well, honey, Jesus wants you alive now. And he has things for you to do here on earth. Then my daughter will turn her anger back to Genesis. And she'll say, well, why did Satan trick Adam and Eve to sin? (laughs) Well, there's some theology right there. Yeah. There's some solid theology at age three. Good job, brother. So Adam and Eve, you better look out when uh, my daughter gets there. But, you know, the funny thing is, whenever we ask her to choose a story, she chooses that one or or she chooses David and Goliath because she loves stories with big bad guys. But uh, overall, I love how she has this righteous longing for heaven that a lot of people just don't have. I mean, of course, there's some grumpiness mixed in there, which is what makes it so funny. But I hope to have that kind of passion that she has. Well, does she expect the things in the new heavens and new earth that we've been talking about? Like, for example, even that young, would she expect to have 
her own body only made new by Jesus? Does she expect to read books, uh, see stories, uh, participate in musical theater, things like that by any chance? Oh, yeah. My wife has been really good about talking to her about the new heavens and new earth and our new bodies and how you're not going to have allergies. You know, you're not going to get tired or get hurt or get sick. And so she's really looking forward to that. And as far as like stories and activities, I mean, it just wouldn't occur to her that those would not exist at some point in the future. Well, it occurs to a lot of Christians, though, uh, even if we decide that we do believe in those uh, ramifications of the resurrection, that we will have real physical bodies. And even if we agree in one sense or another uh, that heaven will touch down to earth and that in one way or other we'll be living on this planet made new, uh, it does tend to make some people nervous when we start talking about what we're going to do uh, because it does trip a lot of very well-meaning impulses that we have, uh, particularly when it comes to stories and things like TV and music and such. If I were to say, for example, Zach, I think that, who knows, I may have a game system on the New Heavens and New Earth Suddenly, everybody who'd be okay with hiking in the New Heavens and New Earth or uh, doing science in the New Heavens and New Earth go, wait a minute. Well, that's not very spiritual. You know, why would you want to sit inside and play games? Well, that's true. You could go outside and ride a unicorn to the New Jerusalem, for example. Why would you want to play games? Then that's a question to ask. But in theory, why wouldn't you have a product of human culture like that? Why wouldn't those things that we mentioned in those earlier verses that Jesus said his chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Why wouldn't that include something like a game system or certainly a book? If a game system makes you nervous, we'll keep talking about books instead. After all, we've talked about a lot of books here, and I don't think we would do that if we thought that these books were just going to be wasted for eternity. A couple of years ago before Star Wars Episode Seven came out, I don't know if you saw this meme that was like, Jesus, I want you to come back, but please don't come back before Star Wars comes out. D did you ever see that? I did. Well, there's a few of those. It's an old joke, too, <laughs> particularly for Christian young people who would really like to get married and right. all that that implies. Like, Jesus, please uh, come back, but not while I'm unmarried. We'll just uh, put, phrase it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, and it, it's just there's an implicit view there that once Jesus comes back, there will be no more movies. You know, that's an interesting thing we have to examine, right? Well, I once wrote an article called Yes, New Earth Will Have Movies, and it, it just goes through the biblical promises of resurrection and particularly the promises that refer to human cultural works, which we heard in the, the text from Isaiah 65. The prophet specifically mentions very earthly things like building houses and living in them, uh, enjoying the fruit of the vine. Uh, you're not going to do these things and have someone else take that away from you. You will long enjoy the work of your hands. If you are in Christ, if you worship Jesus more than you worship sin, then that's a future you can look forward to. Uh, although if you start talking about books or especially movies, yes, that does tend to make people nervous. I, I could go even a step further and ask, okay, what about movies that maybe don't have some good things in them? Like what if they're a little bit mixed? Take, for example, an Avengers movie. There's villains and aliens and stuff in there that uh, goes beyond what we could expect to see in the new heavens and new earth. Will you still have Avengers movies or superhero movies in the new heavens and new earth? If, if that stuff gets burned as unclean, if it suffers that purge of refining fire and it doesn't make the cut, honestly, I would wonder why then should we enjoy that stuff now? If it's uh, not right, if it's not good for us to see it, then we need to ask a very hard question and say, okay, if it's not worthwhile or potentially worthwhile for eternity, then it could upend our whole operation here because then that's, that would also affect the books that we enjoy by Christian authors. Why should those have an eternal significance now if they don't have any for um, actual eternity? <laughs> so that brings a few concessions, by the way. Uh, we'll refer to those previous two episodes for a more broad set of uh, concessions about this whole topic of epic resurrection. There's a few phrases, even in the verses that we've quoted, uh, such as when Isaiah says the former things were not remembered. Uh, there's good reason to view that as a poetic expression and not some kind of memory wipe, uh, which doesn't make any sense at all when you compare with other portions of the scripture. Jesus, for all we know, will continue to possess his wounds for eternity. We will remember God's word. We will remember the gospel. We will remember each other. We will remember how we got here. No memory wipe uh, should be read into this. I would highly doubt that. Also, uh, another concession when it comes to the flawed art of human beings and not things like the animals and such, just literally human cultural works, that we will speculate a little bit more 
I mean, I've already done that a little bit by talking about game systems and movies. We do have to be careful. God takes sin seriously, and many people use these things for sin, use movies and social networking and memes and all of that for sinful ends. So we're going to take that seriously for sure. But we are going to assume that sin starts in the human heart and works its way out to how we use and abuse these gifts rather than the reverse. Uh, Again, if any kind of stories and art have no eternal worth, then we need to ask seriously, do we need to ditch them now? So Stephen, let's start with a simple question. Why did God give us the gift of making culture, including stories and art? As you know, this is a favorite topic of mine uh, because I get a little uptight about the idea that, oh, this thing is just neutral. This thing meaning the creation of stories, books, art, music, all that. Uh, When people say, oh, that's just neutral, I go, no, I actually feel like I really need a biblical justification for this. I need positive statements in the scripture that assure me that there is a God-glorifying purpose to all of this. I need proof that this is a human activity that is part of good humanity, the way that God originally made us, uh, rather than presuming it's either neutral or sinful. Zach, we were talking about this before. Uh, There was a well-meaning pastor who, uh, as we're recording this a few weeks ago, he tweeted this, quote, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spirit beings having a human experience, end quote. Mm. You remember that one? Mostly people piled on him because he said spirit beings, and that sounds cultic. You know, oh, he's a, he's a Mormon or something. He's, you know, he believes in floating spirits. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. think he does. I think that was being a little bit rude to him. Uh, it wasn't that he was trying to teach something bad. I think it was just careless language. But uh, it does reflect the meme that Christians often catch, that it's inferior to be human. That when you worship God, the best kind of worship is the kind of worship done in ways that would not be natural. Uh, why would we worship God through breathing? or eating food, or marrying others, things like that. Actually, ways that the Bible does assume are ways to glorify God. Yeah, and that's that, that's that whole we're separating the sacred from the secular, the physical from the spiritual, and we're kind of trying to split ourselves in half and say only half of us is good. Exactly. Uh, humans are made to be spiritual beings and material beings at the same time. We are made to be unified wholes. That was God's idea, not our idea. Uh, He didn't make us a platonic, idyllic uh, being, uh, which does nothing but stare into the face of God or some kind of metaphorical representation of that uh, forever and ever. He didn't do that to Adam and Eve. Uh, That's not how we glorify him now, and that's not how we could expect to glorify him for eternity. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience or vice versa. We are God-created beings having a human-slash-spiritual experience all at once. God made us to make stuff. That is one big way that we glorify God. God makes stuff out of nothing, and we make stuff using the stuff that God has made. That was his idea. In Genesis 1.28, there's a statement that theologians call the cultural mandate, where God tells people to fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, steward the resources. That is a royal calling. We worship God by imitating him and acting as his regents over creation. That was the original purpose anyway. Sin interrupted it, and we get a whole gospel plan over thousands of years to start to make things right. But that original purpose is still there. Uh, Adam named the animals. They collected fruit. They would later on even make things like wine or uh, dishes made from the food and the harvest that they were making. That's human culture. That's what we would call culture, uh, which is uh, all of those things that we do using the stuff that God made. The stories, however, that I would say is a degree removed. The stories that we make up about the animals is a particular kind of culture. Art and storytelling and all of that are also part of that cultural mandate. I would also say that stories are not just meant to help us uh, learn lessons or learn morality or just relax and get away from it all. The very making of a story can glorify God. That's a big assumption that, uh, that I have coming to this podcast and everything that we do at Lorehaven, if we believe that we're going to worship God forever, then why would that not include the original purpose for which God created us to glorify God by acting as his regents on earth, which includes the making of story as well as science and building buildings and farming and making new kinds of foods and music and all of those things, those implicitly honor the creative God who created us. 
we can talk about God's original design, but as we know, sin entered humanity and sort of corrupted everything. So why did humans keep on making things, and how do we make sense of that in light of uh, this, the reality of sin? Well, this could be a whole podcast all by itself, but we certainly can't skip over the idea that sin has interrupted. It has nearly killed this original idea that God had for us to go on reflecting his image as we steward his creation. Sin corrupts the human heart. When Adam and Eve took that fruit from the tree and decided they wanted to be God, that stain spread outward to what they do. Uh, God then cursed the ground as a result. And it wasn't that the ground became cursed first and then they stepped on it and then got cursed. The creation is cursed. It suffers the curse. And as we've mentioned, the Apostle Paul says that it now groans because it's kings and queens, human beings have gone wrong. We can't skip past that part when we're talking about stories now. Uh, sometimes uh, every once in a while I read Christian movie reviews, Zach, and they seem to kind of forget the curse. Uh, they will talk about all the wonderful things in this, uh, in this independent film that they saw or this folk album that they listened to or a pop album of some kind, and then they'll kind of make a reference to sin here and there, uh, but that's more of the exception. I think we cannot afford to be that cavalier about the effect that sin has had on our creations. Nevertheless, Scripture has examples of people still making stuff. Israel, of course, uh, we have a whole Bible based on the collected records, Holy Spirit-inspired records, we believe, that God's people in the Old Testament nation of Israel have put together poetry and songs and histories and all of that stuff in the Old Testament. But you also get early references to other nations making a culture. One of my favorite examples is a, a person called Jubal, who is mentioned in Genesis 4.21. There's a whole lost empire of culture there of uh, music makers, apparently. But that was before the flood, so we don't have any of their songs anymore, which presumably by now would be royalty-free, by the way. One of the things I always like looking at in the Old Testament is when they say this was recorded in the book of something, and it's a book not found in our Bible, and I don't even think found in the Apocrypha. Uh, it's like in the book of First and Second Kings where they're saying, as for so-and-so, the son of Blanca, and all his deeds, and how he defeated XYZ and built this, are they not written in the so-and-so? Yeah. And then he died and was buried with his fathers, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good reminder that there was culture-making going on outside of the Bible, that there was writings happening outside the Bible. Not that we should put those on par with the Bible. I'm not going to get all Dan Brown here or anything, but just a reminder that all cultures make culture. And you know, you, you made an interesting observation, Stephen, is that too often we can forget the sinful elements or the how sin has corrupted movies and books and things like that. I think we can also go to the other extreme and only focus on the sinful elements of movies and books and stories. And we can kind of forget that, Hey, there's actually something really good here at the core. But once we meet Jesus and he redeems us, how does that change the stuff that we make? Well, that's why we're doing this podcast because we do believe that there is something unique about stories made by Christians. Although we, we certainly find what theologians would call the common grace in stories that are made by non-Christians. Uh, we do believe at Laurieven that Christians have a, a bit of an inside track on the purpose of why stories exist, or at least we should. We know that the stories are not just made so that we can make a better world or teach our kids or try to get some kind of message through to them that would be more memorable if it came from a character rather than a textbook. We know as Christians that we are meant to enjoy stories, that the very notion of a story is based on that epic story that God is telling. He did not deliver the Bible as a textbook or as some kind of a formula, but as an epic true life narrative. Uh, when we have stories that include heroes going on a quest and defeating some kind of foe, the very structure implicitly honors that, that gospel narrative, even if you don't have a Christ figure in the story. Uh, sometimes we forget this, of course. Uh, we will get distracted and you know, we can't help but think of stories in terms of how they fulfill those lesser but still significant ends of just something to keep the kids distracted during a quarantine, for example. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but even then, we, we got a lot of Paw Patrol going on right now. Oh, uh, <laughs> Paw Patrol. You know, I understand that the theme song for that was made by the same man who wrote the song, I'm Not Cool, That's Okay, My God Loves Me Anyway, Scott Kripane. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. That Look is, it I up. I did not know that. I was a bit surprised too. 
We're going to look that up before we cut this. Make sure that that's accurate. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure I found that. Rabbit trail? Okay, back on track. Uh, even in the idea of, uh, of stories as a vehicle for truth, by the way, is at least better than the nonsense that art exists for art's sake, which is uh, just ascribing some kind of a motive to a thing that doesn't make any sense biblically or rationally. Art exists for the sake of us, and we exist for the sake of God, and art is something that we do as a reflection of who God made us to be. So here on Fantastical Truth, we focus primarily on stories made by fellow believers. But Stephen, does that mean that stories made by non-believers are just worthless or not worth our time? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> we, we, we've done enough Star Trek references to give the lie uh, to the notion that we would believe that. Uh, I've spent plenty of time um, obviously watching movies or reading books by non-believers. Some of those stories, of course, are amazing. And while some Christians can go too far with that, as I mentioned, it does behoove us to remember that the cultural mandate is still in effect. God's common grace is still in the world. He makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And even people who don't know him kind of give it away that they're still made in his image when they make something decent or something amazing artistically. Someone who's very good at singing. Uh, Zach, the other uh, evening, uh, my wife and I were watching the Phantom of the Opera uh, stage musical, and some of the singing in there is just amazing. And I'm, I'm sitting there watching these highly trained performers belting out this incredible music and thinking, well, there's no Christ figure in this story. There's no overt gospel reflection, but just the very idea that people have been, even in a sinful world, training themselves to do these amazing feats honors the creator over and above whatever their intentions are, which could be a mix of, I just love singing to, I really want to get paid to, I really want to be famous on stage, you know, sinful motives mixed with good motives because people are a mess. We have good impulses in us and we have idolatry in us. And scripture says that both are in us. Great stories are great though. Great performances. Art is great because God is great. He's the one who put that goodness into the world. It's a happy bonus if we get stories where there's an overt Christ figure to pick out. So-and-so superhero dies in a cross pose and saves the world. Uh, and then we can look at that and go, oh, hey, that's kind of like Jesus. I guess this is sort of a Christian story. It's like, well, that's a happy bonus, uh, but don't get too sidetracked by that. The story is still flawed. It can't keep its own promises. Uh, even if it reflects Christian themes, it's not as amazing as a story by a Christian who knows the purpose of stories and is therefore able to glorify God consciously by making the story. Yeah, I, I made a controversial take on episode two that we've gotten a lot of interesting comments about that there, there can be such a thing as an accidentally Christian story. And, you know, obviously it's not going to be the same uh, level of gospel proclamation as a story written by a believer who wants to like you said, consciously puts the gospel or gospel themes in the story. But I, you know, I always think about that verse in Acts where it says he has not left himself without witness. And I think somehow people just subconsciously sort of channel elements of the gospel story or just the overall redemption story of the Bible. Anyway, listener, if you have some thoughts about that, let, let us know. Let's go on to our next part. Stephen, will God let us go on enjoying culture forever in the new creation? Well, we spent a lot of time setting up the reason that God made culture in the first place, and not for the last time on this podcast, I assure you. The purpose of that is to outline a very basic idea, is that God made up. God created the idea of humans creating culture. Let's repeat that. God created the idea of humans making culture. The next step there is that there's nothing in scripture that says that that idea of God's has an expiration date. I don't find anything in scripture that says that while God created Adam and Eve in the garden to glorify God in these very human ways, and then he still lets his people, Old and New Testaments, in the Old Testament age and in the church age, continue to glorify God in these ways. I don't see anything that says that that purpose will be aborted, that we're going to shed the corporeal form of this human existence or continue being human in appearance and in nature, but not doing human things. I think that the cultural mandate lasts forever 
And if anything, it is uh, the get people saved element of the Great Commission that has a natural expiration date. Because although I am certain that we will not be omniscient in the new heavens and new earth, we will go on training one another, learning from one another about God, although obviously no false ideas that are harmful will continue. It would seem that it's actually the cultural mandate that lasts forever, because there will always be a need to care for creation and make stories. The idea, I think we can say, is eternal. And especially because we get those direct references to the kings bringing the honor and glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem. And even in the Old Testament, a few verses away from talking about new heavens and new earth, not just millennial kingdom, by the way, it's talking about vineyards and things like that. And it doesn't specifically mention music and books that I see, but there are references in Revelation to books, whether or not they're metaphorical, at least the idea is there. But my presumption there is that if scripture doesn't say there was no longer any X, then we have no reason to put the burden of proof that X will continue on the person who thinks it will continue. Like, actually, I think the burden of proof is on the person to say, well, why shouldn't it continue? For example, if scripture didn't say that marriage is somehow fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth, then I would assume that it would keep going. And there would be complications with people who had been married to people who later died or been divorced and such. But I would presume it would keep going, if not for the fact that Jesus seems to have been very clear in saying that there is some kind of fulfillment there. We can also, we know in another podcast, we could talk about the text that says there was no longer any sea. Well, you have to jump through a few hoops now to prove that a sea would continue because it seems to very plainly say something that it doesn't continue. Yeah, I like how you said earlier, there's not going to be a memory wipe. And in fact, the Bible repeatedly shows the opposite of that when Jesus told the story about Lazarus and the rich man that died. Now, disclaimer, this, these probably were not real people, or at least potentially not real people. But the rich man told Abraham, let me go back and warn my brothers not to come here. So he, he remembered things. He remembered who his siblings were, and he cared about them. But if you, if you think about when Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus and spoke with him, so you know, their ability to have language was not erased. And then fast forward to Revelation where there's the martyrs that are by the throne and they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our deaths? So they, they remember what happened to them and they, you know, they could tell stories about it there. And I, you know, I just think about this. I, we're not going to forget the stories that we know now. Even if all the books get vaporized, we, I guess we could rewrite them. And especially because we are not going to have that ability vaporized to tell a story. It's not like we're just going to be able to talk. Story is the language that we speak. It's not just like something separate from us. It's how we communicate. So I, I think it's, it's very logical to conclude that we'll keep doing that. And you mentioned books in Revelation. This is something I've thought about a lot, that in Revelation 20, it says books will be opened, which everyone will be judged by, but then there's the Lamb's book of life. And then if your name is written in that, then you're, you go to be with the Lamb. So, you know, what are those books? What's in those books? And, and will there keep being made? If books are being recorded right now about our lives, well, I would think there would continue to be books written about our lives afterward. Exactly. Well, I would think that even if there wasn't a reference, possibly metaphorical to books, in Revelation, because again, I think that the burden of proof needs to be on someone to show from Scripture that a good, basic human cultural thing like books shouldn't be there. Why presume that it wouldn't be? You would need to get a Scripture text that says that it won't be. This brings, though, you know, three reasons that we can not only presume that books and human cultural works will be there, but that we're free to biblically speculate about the types of human cultural works that could be there. Uh, for example, the Bible itself. We've already got that, and the Bible itself is clearly going to be eternal in some way. And I don't just mean, oh, we'll remember the Word of God, we'll have all the memory verses in our heads, which even then would presume there is no memory wipe. But the Bible itself is a human cultural work. It is a popular work in many ways. And not only that, but I think it's kind of fun that there are examples of pagan popular culture from the Greek tragedian days. Uh, in the first century, right there in the book of Acts, uh, from which Paul quotes in Acts 17. Yeah, that's one of my favorite passages. Yes, you know, Menander or whoever, any of those uh, 
Greek playwrights that have at least a few of their words immortalized, if not the whole thing. Christ will judge evil, the Bible says, but it does say that the creation itself will be set free. If the creation itself will be set free, why would that not also include elements repurposed from creation that humans have made into books? If a tree is set free or the idea of trees is set free, then why not books that are made from trees? Not just, for example, the idea, the Platonic ideal of the Bible, but the actual Bible that you had throughout your life that you marked up, that you highlighted uh, where you dwelled on the words and worshiped Jesus because of them and learned why would that not be preserved through the fire as a, as a relic, as a memento, and as a continuing tool for studying God's word in the new earth. Uh, and again, as we've seen, scripture refers specifically to human cultural works, like in Isaiah 60 and 65, you get treasures and wine and feasts. Isaiah 60 lists nations, kings, family members, the sea, wealth, camels, but it also starts talking about human cultural works. There's images of trade in there going on, economy going on. There are cities with walls and gates and trees from Lebanon, which I think is really cool. It's not just a particular kind of tree, but a specific commercial item. Uh, I believe it was uh, trees from Lebanon that were used in the building of Solomon's temple. So there's probably some references there to a particular product. Uh, you may as well say X brand lumber from Lowe's or the Home Depot these days. Isaiah 65, you get houses and vineyards like we've mentioned. Uh, these are not just redeemed human souls or God's word or even God's creation like animals or mountains. They're examples of things that people create using God's creation. And I always love it that in Revelation 21, even if the New Jerusalem descriptions there are symbolic in some way, it's talking about precious jewels and items, not just raw items dug out of the earth, but there are images there of refined jewels. And refining is a human cultural practice. You are literally taking something out of the earth, God's creation, and you are doing something to it as an act of human stewardship to make it different. You're making something using God's stuff. I think that that counts as the glory and the honor of the nations. And I, I would read there in that phrase, human cultural works, human things, which again is a clear reference to some kind of continuity between here and there, which means that technically still means you can't take it with you, which I don't think is a biblical phrase, but I think accurately describes the fact that, you know, you don't actually, uh, what is it? There's no trailers on the hearse or something. The phrase goes, you, you don't take your stuff, you know, you go into the grave. If you're a rich person, you go in there just as wealthy as a poor person you have to die on your own and Jesus has to be the one to resurrect you. You're not taking your stuff, but God does have the right. And he seems to have clearly made the promises that there's going to be some kind of stuff, even perhaps the idea of private ownership for God's glory in the new creation, which includes all these cultural things, all these stories, music, games, uh, anything you can think of that's not overtly sinful. I like how you said that it's not just that lumber will exist, but a specific kind of lumber, the lumber from Lebanon. And that got me thinking about the different coffee that everyone likes to enjoy, whether you like Costa Rican coffee or Colombian coffee or Ethiopian coffee. You know, I, I say that I'm a coffee snob, Stephen, but honestly, I can't always really tell the difference. I just, I'm more of a snob in how I make the coffee, but I, I don't know a whole lot about the different varieties around the world. But in terms of the stories that exist, there's one type of story I really can't wait to read. And it's the story of Jesus' life that's not found in the Gospels, that the stories of his life beyond what we know. And there's this passage, I've, I've thought about this passage since I was 18 years old when I first heard it. And this is from John 21, 25. It says, quote, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written, In quote. Now just think about that. John, who just finished writing his gospel, thinks, man, there's so much more that, you know, I didn't even have a chance to write down and there's so much I didn't even know. But God knows, as we saw in Revelation 20, and then you can look in Psalm 139 and make the same conclusion that everything gets written down about our lives. And just think about all the things that Jesus did that we don't even know about, but we're going to get I think we're going to get to read those books in the new heavens and the new earth. But Stephen, what about great human works that are about other people's lives or just fictional people? Do you think those are going to last forever in some way? 
I think they will. And we've taken great pains to set up the idea that the idea of human culture will last. But technically, you could say that we still have human culture, but we just start from scratch. The fire cleans out everything, and then we have to rebuild from memory, as if there was a uh, dystopia or an apocalypse, for example. Uh, well, we're all set back to the Stone Age, and we just have to start all over again based on our memories of computer chips and how to make electricity and all of that. I don't think that's the case. I think that we're going to keep right on going, and the only reset would be the nastier motives for human cultural production. We're not going to be able to keep going with exploitation or unfair trade practices, slavery in other nations to make t-shirts, things like that. That's all going to be done away with. Any stuff that we're making, whether it's stories or books or whatever, is going to be wonderful and fun and good, fulfilling work for the glory of God. Real quick too, I also, I want to make sure that people know, I mean, we're getting this from a variety of sources, not just us reading scripture, but from many other theologians. I've got the quotes in front of me, but we, we haven't time to get into all of them, but there's a really good book by Walters called Creation Regained. Uh, that's a really good one. We'll try to put that quote in the show notes. Of course, uh, author Randy Alcorn, uh, he actually quoted uh, this section in his book, Heaven from the Mid-2000s. That's a, to me, it's a prime resource for understanding this idea of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, we quote from him frequently, and he's always at the back of uh, a lot of this mini-series in the podcast. And then I will read a quote, actually, that uh, I think I wrote this myself uh, from our upcoming book, The Pop Culture Parent. Uh, which has been rescheduled release for fall from New Growth Press. I wrote that with two other authors, Ted Turneau and Jared Moore. And we have a section where we do talk about the possibility of not just human culture lasting forever into new heavens and new earth, but popular culture, including fantasy, including specific books, including specific copies of books, perhaps. This is the quote that we have, quote, Scripture never indicates human progress will be lost or reset after King Jesus renews all creation. Wheels will still be wheels, and we needn't reinvent them. Music scales and mathematics are part of this universe's unchanging laws. The hero's journey will still be a basis of many stories. Thus, if we have no reason to suspect our genres and styles will be reset, we also have no reason to suspect that we would disregard specific and good creative works that glorify God. Sure, J.R.R. Tolkien may create even better Middle-earth tales. But surely we will always remember his first stories of Beleriand, the elves, and the hobbits. End quote. Tolkien files, please. I tried to pronounce Beleriand as best I could, recalling on you did better than I could. Least, uh, the basic uh, <laughs> Elvish uh, pronunciation rules that I have in my head, and every once in a while, especially reading the Old Testament, I'll, I'll carry those Elvish pronunciation rules forward, and <laughs> all those Hebrew cities end up sounding more uh, more Tolkien than Hebrew. <laughs> Well, that's wonderful. I, 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 you know, I've never even thought about that. That I, I've only thought about. Well, will Lord of the Rings continue to exist? But I've never thought. Well, what's going to be the next book in the series? So I, I think that's very much something we can look forward to. But surely this doesn't mean that every kind of story that exists now will always exist, or that any type of story that exists now could be made into a new type, a new story in the new heaven. Do you, do you think so? Well, there's at least one genre that's totally out. I think we, all Christians of goodwill who are informed by the gospel can agree, no porn. Okay, no porn. Can we just get rid of that entirely? The scripture specifically says nothing unclean will ever enter into this city. And if you understand the city as a reference to the whole new creation, no. Porn is out. Stuff made solely for the purpose of sinning is gone. Imagine that. Like, I would be happy with the new heavens and new earth without any stories ever if we just got rid of that nasty stuff. Anything that was made to express rebellion against God or a disorder of his vision of creation is gone. Nothing unclean will ever enter there, which also means, by the way, it's, it's a conviction thing. It's a holiness motive for us now, because if it's not going to even stand a slight chance of passing into the new heavens and new earth, if it's unclean there, then it's unclean here. Get it out of your house. Get it out of your mind. Get other believers, your family, people from your church to help you with that. What about a flawed thing? Okay, let's not talk about something R-rated, but as we are asking these earthly questions, let us dare to ask then, as I mentioned earlier, okay, what about superhero movies? All right. 
the Avengers movies. They're they're really good. We love them. We we've all sort of clapped our hands and we believe in fairies and they we believe that they're always family friendly. That that they're not always family friendly. <laughs> not even if you have the Disney name in front. However, you know, most people, even Christians, love superhero movies. I have been to homeschooled conventions, which you'd think would be like super conservative or something. That's not true. Everybody's wearing and just have Bible. No, everyone's wearing yeah. superhero T-shirts for, you know, real superheroes, not not, you know, the Christian diet version of superheroes. No offense, <laughs> no offense intended. But OK, we all love superheroes. But at the same time, OK, like even Captain America, you know, God soldier or whatever it is that Ultron calls him. He's a good, uh, righteous uh, hero, and yet he'll also cuss, okay? So the question then becomes, if we would have superhero movies in New Earth, and there's no reason to assume not, the similar ones from today, are they going to be like the airline version? <laughs> you know, the vidangel <laughs> version? They're bleeping yeah. out the words? <laughs> okay, but if I saw uh, Avengers Endgame, and I know that this, uh, this moment here, because of my better, improved memory, in new earth, not my censored memory. Like I, I know he cussed there. And then if, 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 if they bleep it out, who are we trying to fool? We're all going to know that that's actually what happened. So <laughs> any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I've always thought, so we talked about revelation 20 where it says there's books being recorded about everything in our lives. That's going to be opened. And I, what I've, you know, so the next question to ask is, well, are we going to get to read anyone else's books or is anyone going to read our books? And there's something that Jesus said that may shed some light on this, where he said, um, I'll have to think of the reference and we'll put this in the show notes. He says, whatever is whispered in secret will be shouted from the rooftop. Uh, yes. Frightening. So every, <laughs> yeah, everything is going to be exposed. And so, and that means we're, I think we're going to have some awareness of the sins of other people and all the things that are done in secret, which again is frightening, but we're not going to be being tempted or, or sinning in our minds by reading those stories. Well, there certainly will be no temptation to look at that person, ask us like, Oh no, I can't believe that person did that. I mean, there's going to be murderers <laughs> there, fornicators, yeah. sorcerers, all of those things that the apostle Paul said, such were some of you, that's going to be the reference point there. Such were some of you, it'll be a motive for worship and gratitude to God and probably some laughter. Uh, you killed, you killed him and he's over there. And like, yeah, that was, that was that was a bad moment. <laughs> yeah, think about Jim Elliot's uh, murder. Of you know, course. he he's going to be there with Jim Elliot, and they're going to tell the story of how he killed him. You know, they were redeemed and they were forgiven and they were reconciled with the widows. So that that's something really amazing to think. Well, about. that's also a, a an implicit proof that we will recall instances of sin and obviously not be corrupted, not be tempted. We will obviously recall that Jesus suffered the greatest indignity, the greatest horror ever, and yet it is necessary, it's vital to know that in order to know how we got there. There's no memory wipe again, so we're not going to have a, a purged copy of the Bible with all the scary parts cut out. Uh, that terrible story in Judges about uh, the Levite and his concubine, that's still going to be in the new heavens and new earth. So that would tend to upend the idea of human popular culture that's been all cleaned up and more G-rated than G-rated. Randy Alcorn, uh, for example, though, he, he, he supposes that uh, perhaps the, it's only the, the good stories, uh, you know, the good parts versions that last. Uh, I might disagree with him a little bit there. Uh, there is that divine censorship option, but of course we'll be redeemed saints. Uh, nothing, nothing's going to tempt us. I think... My perspective there is that even the mixed stuff that survives, like the classical works, like if Shakespeare's plays are there or all that stuff that's been lost from the library of Alexandria, perhaps all brought back. We will see all that stuff with redeemed eyes. After all, Jesus right now, God sees everything doesn't make him any less holy. And we're going to have redeemed eyes just like he does. So let's go back to that book that I co-wrote with uh, Ted Turneau and Jared Moore. We haven't released it yet, but it's called The Pop Culture Parent. We actually have a appendix to that book, Appendix B, I think it is, in which we explore the possibility that popular culture, specific items, not just the idea of popular culture, will last forever. This is the quote, quote, lest this seem crazy, remember that even the most flawed human still dimly reflects God's image. Similarly, a flawed story, song, or game reflects the glory of God, albeit with a faded and distorted image. 
how much more clearly will our glorified eyes see this reflected glory shining in man-made things. After all, if we see a reminder of sin today, this doesn't make us sin today. We only fall into sin when our own idolatry latches onto these depictions. But in eternity's tomorrow, those idols and twisted desires will be no more. We will be literally incorruptible. All right, so we've talked about what if secular stories could survive, and, and if so, how. What about Christian-made stories? So when we speak specifically about Christian-made stories, and throughout, whenever I say Christian stories, I'm talking about Christians who made the story, I think we're actually on even even stronger foundation to suppose that these stories will in some way last forever. And I would base this uh, speculation, and it is a speculation, on a biblical truth that God does promise that in some way good works will last forever into eternity. Uh, this is the scripture that I draw from to suppose this. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. And the apostle Paul here writes, quote, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." End quote. This passage used to confuse me a lot, and frankly, it actually used to offend me because it does seem to suggest that in some way, first, good works or works will last forever, even after it has been fire purged of the impurities. There's that refining language going on there. But also, this passage seems to show that Christians are going to be different in the new heavens and new earth. Some people will have done different kinds of good works than others. That's actually a very Apostle Paul type idea where he's talking about the church now has people who've done different kinds of things, who have different kinds of gifts. Here, we seem to see that it's not just uh, differences that are revealed, uh, but the impurities that are purged out. And the good works, I would say, don't seem to be limited just to ministry works. Uh, a good pastor might go through here and do a lot a better job with this passage than I can do in such a short, short time right now. Uh, particularly building on all the other ideas of good works and uh, what they're about throughout the rest of the New Testament. But here, I don't see anything, at least in this text, that says that this is just a particular kind of super spiritual ministry work that's being tested. Let's say you build a church or fed the needy or something like that. The idea of good works in the Bible, I think, could certainly apply also to the good creative works that we've done. It doesn't just mean if you drew a pretty picture that that would count as uh, some kind of big work as unto the Lord, but did it? Did you, while drawing that awesome picture or painting a painting or recording that song, was that a good work done as unto the Lord and not for men, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere? Why then wouldn't this work also be subjected to that kind of testing that the Apostle Paul talks about? Uh, maybe that's a reference to the refining fire of 2 Peter 3.10, where the earth is laid bare. Will your good work, your creative work, be laid bare also? Will any of the sinful motives be somehow fire blasted out of that? And will the end result be far better, yet also still qualitatively the same work uh, that we would have enjoyed here on the old earth? Either way, we know that uh, anything that we do is, is going to result from mixed motives, whether it's creative or ministry or whatever. Either way, it's going to be cleaned up somehow. We can trust that Jesus is going to do that. I would apply that directly to Christians who are in the creative arts, uh, who make popular culture or who... Uh, make uh, books, make novels, uh, including some of the novels that we've read. I would not say, by the way, that there's a creative class of Christians and then there's another class of Christians who are just uh, bored and they just turn the machines on or they're just, uh, they're just dull kinds of uh, left brain sorts. They're the numbers people. Uh, they're the people who keep the heat on in the building. No, everyone, one way or another, is a creative person. Actually, there's a great book by Andrew Peterson recently, singer-songwriter and storyteller Andrew Peterson, uh, where he talks about that very thing, that every Christian is made to be creative, which means that if there is a chance that these works that we do will in some way last forever, not because uh, we drag it with us to heaven, but because it is ultimately God's work to test and make last forever, should he choose to, if those works do even have a little chance of lasting forever, isn't that even more motive for Christian 
creators to do their best work now. It's not just the content of the work. Like if you, if you made a, uh, a really pretty picture of John 3.16 or something, I don't think it's that John 3.16 is going to last because that's God's word and that's the only thing that's going to last. I think there's a good chance that if you did that work with excellence and with good intent to glorify Jesus, there's a chance that that work could last forever, which means that we're not dealing just with temporary stuff here. I think that specific works by specific Christians will last forever. Take the example of uh, the Lord of the Rings with J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm pretty certain that that book itself and a lot of the supporting work, if not all of uh, everything that Professor Tolkien wrote, has a good chance of lasting forever. And just imagine the kinds of sequels that he could be working on now. Now, will it go through some kind of a fire purge? Eh, maybe. I imagine if, uh, <laughs> if the refining fire of God uh, doesn't clean out the impurities, then you know Tolkien himself is going to go nuts, still wanting to revise it. And honestly, after he's waited for so long, I don't think that anyone is going to want to stop him. Either way, imagine a new and improved The Lord of the Rings, although we'll still remember the old one that blessed so many of us so much here on Old Earth, and imagine the amazing sequels that Tolkien could write as he goes back to his story universe. Is he already working on it now? I don't know, but you know that he's just going to want to keep going. Or if not returning to Middle-earth, maybe he'll make an entirely other universe in which uh, we would play. And hopefully he might let uh, some of us uh, <laughs> contribute to that universe as well, but he'd be entirely within his rights uh, just to keep that creative expression for himself. But it's not just the super Christians who will be doing this forever and ever. Again, I think all Christians are called to be creative, uh, not because uh, we are Christians, but because we're human beings. Back in Genesis, as we saw, God gave us that idea of worshiping him through those creative acts of stewardship on the earth, which includes not just taking care of the animals and growing fruit trees and farming and such, but I would also group human culture making in there. Building a building is a creative act that glorifies God. Your daily job right now, unless you're sinning, is also glorifying God. So imagine a world in which we have been set free from sin and those mixed motives at best and all the other human nastiness, and we can do those creative works forever and ever as direct acts of worship for the glory of God. Of course, that doesn't mean we'd be sitting inside uh, making stories or music or whatever. We may just want to put that away for a few thousand years and go ride a unicorn or colonize a planet or any of those other crazy things we'd like to dream about. Maybe we'll, the creative sorts they'll want to pick up some engineering or something. I certainly would. Uh, I feel uh, like I really wish that I could learn a little bit more about science and all of those stuff that looks very cool from the outside. But regardless of what we choose to do, it's going to glorify God automatically in the new heavens and new earth in ways that we can only approximate now. Just imagine the ability to create without any of the drama, any of the nonsense, and anything that we create just the very act of creating is a deeply human act. And it won't be pitted against worship. It's not like, okay, I'm going to stop worshiping God now, which means sitting in heaven's throne room, uh, receiving him or singing or something. I, I don't know. It's a little unclear in some of the memes that we pick up. No, everything we do will be worshiping him. It won't, we won't be able to stop. We won't want to stop. Everything that we do surely will be conscious of King Jesus 100% of the time even if we're not directly looking at him 100% of the time, because it was Jesus's idea, not something we made up, but Jesus's idea to make humans human. This is how we human. This is how we worship by being human. And in the new heavens and new earth, I am 100% sure we will, whatever form that takes, we'll be more human, not less human in how we worship King Jesus forever and ever. You know, you said earlier, if there's a work of fiction that you know, we're not going to be in, uh, enjoy in the new heaven and new earth, then why would we, you know, indulge in it now? And I thought that's such a great point, Stephen, and that that's a great way to guard against temptation. But there's also a positive corollary of that, that if we are going to enjoy the sequels to the Lord of the Rings by a super Tolkien, you know, by a resurrected Tolkien, then how about we enjoy those stories now? You know, the ones that we expect to read in the new heaven and new earth, let's read them now. There's this thought that several years ago I was wrestling to finish the book of Jeremiah. I would just I would start reading it. And I would just get kind of stuck in it. And I had this thought of meeting the prophet Jeremiah one day in the future and him saying, Hey, do you read my book? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would hope so. So that kind of, yeah. And so that, you know, that motivated me to finish because I don't want to say no, you know, when I get to meet him, but I, I think I had this false idea in my head that 
that this earth is the only chance I have to read the Bible. And if I don't finish reading it and finish Jeremiah, then that's it. I'll get to heaven and Jeremiah is going to look really disappointed in me. You know, I'll, I'll still get to read it. But it's more the point that if I'm going to read it then, why not read it now? You know, it, it's not that I, it's one or the other, but I like this idea that whatever we're going to enjoy for eternity, that's a good thing. It's fine to enjoy that now. Well, that's where that principle of continuity comes in. Uh, actually, in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, one of my favorite moments is where uh, they're looking over the boundaries of Aslan's country from uh, New Narnia or New Aslan's country, and they see a New England, actually, uh, kind of a, a glimpse of what England will become in the future. And uh, Lucy asks, wait a minute, we're looking at the, the professor's house. I thought that house was destroyed. And Tumnus says, well, yes, it was destroyed, but in this land, no good thing is ever destroyed. That is an assumption I have in the back of my head is that I don't see anything in scripture that says that with some exceptions, of course, that God is in the business of destroying good things. There are exceptions that scripture talks about, of course, marriage and the revelation passage says there was no longer any sea and there's some other things. But I think it's safe to presume that if there are any good things now that we're able to do for the glory of God, why would we presume those things would be destroyed? I'm going to presume those things will last forever unless it is sinful, unless there's a good reason based on scripture for that thing to be gone. Only sin will not continue in the new heavens and new earth. No unclean thing will enter the city. And we can safely presume, I think, that no unclean thing will ever enter anywhere into that redeemed universe. Uh, another Lewis reference I've enjoyed is actually in the, the Great Divorce, which is kind of a fantasy allegorical representation of the afterlife where some people from a place kind of like hell, uh, which is visualized as this drab city, it's completely boring and just spreads out forever and ever, or so you think it does, because once you ascend in a bus, actually, into this vision of paradise, you find out that there's no way you can take anything from paradise back into hell. Hell is actually represented by this microscopic little crack in the ground of heaven. Lewis isn't saying this is how it's like for real. He's real careful about that. He's saying this is a picture of what it's like, uh, maybe kind of a way to cast present day realities and kind of project them into the future. The ultimate message there is clear. Hell is tiny. It's boring. It, anything that sin does reduces you in size, in significance, and in weight. It's actually in heaven, in paradise, that everything good is brought forward and becomes more solid and more real, which uh, leads me to the wrap-up we need for this series. Uh, we really want to emphasize the fact that it's only sin that's not going to be there. And if any of this, by the way, makes you think, oh, great, since this stuff from old earth is going to last in a new earth, that means I can keep my sin. No, absolutely not. That's not how you Bible, and that's certainly not how you new earth. One way or another, we're dealing with eternal realities here, and eternal realities do not include sin. That stuff is going to be purged by the fire, and that's why I'm so grateful that those references to fire, judgment fire, refining fire, are there in the Bible. You don't get from old earth to new earth without fire, without some kind of a death for this creation. But after that, there's still going to be some stuff that lasts forever, which includes, for example, God's word. That word lasts forever. The Bible's very clear about that, which, by the way, would mean that the books last forever. At least one book is going to last forever. I don't think it's just going to be floating there in the ether. God decided to turn his word into written copy. And then eventually that made its way into books. And now we have eBooks and everything one way or another. I'm convinced we're going to keep God's word, probably with some translation glitches fixed here and there. You know, maybe some of our commentary will have a little bit more fire than usual, but we're going to have the Bible forever. And by the way, the Bible speaks positively about the reason why God gave us human culture and itself includes examples of human culture, uh, particularly check the book of Acts uh, chapter 17. We also know that human souls will last forever, and we need to define that soul as the union of soul and body, not just the floating soul that's been pulled out from the body, disposed of the wrapper, of the only thing inside, the only thing valuable is what's inside. And all of our souls, by the way, are, are affected by these stories. So even if we don't have these stories forever, we're going to remember them. And from there, it's just a slight jump to wonder, well, why wouldn't we still have those kinds of stories? God's planet Earth and the universe will last forever. We've gone over that, particularly in the second episode of this series, Fantastical Truth, episode 13. This is all his kingdom. And finally, very likely, human culture, including popular culture, the games, the apps, or whatever technology is going on, 
the music, the books, the fiction, the nonfiction, all of our learning, any of those popular works, maybe even TV shows and movies, I think those things will also last forever. Which, by the way, gives the lie to a line that I hear some Christians say, uh, like, for example, if they've gotten distracted, they're having fun at an event or maybe uh, before Sunday school starts or something like that, or maybe in your family, uh, will be referencing fiction or talking about a TV show or superhero movie or something. And then someone will say something like, well, okay, it's okay. Now that we've had our fun, uh, let's talk about the real world now. Well, you can't uh, overindulge in fun stuff like that all the time. Sometimes it is time to break down and get serious. But we didn't just switch from talking about the unreal world to the real world, because in the real world, we like these kinds of stories that our enjoyment of them is just as much real world as anything else. That is part of the real world. It's also part of being human in the real world. All this is real world stuff. If it's not real world stuff, then what do we categorize it as? Is it sin? Is it a distraction from the real world? If it is, then we need to stop it entirely. Uh, we need to get rid of that sacred secular divide. I'm going to go over here and be flippant and talk about the stories that I enjoy. Oh, but then, oh, you know, now that the uh, pastor comes in the room, I, I think I need to just talk about the Bible verses now. It's a bit of a cliche, but I think even that idea can be in the back of our heads. If this stuff is not real world stuff, then we've no reason to enjoy it now. It is a distraction and it is possibly sin. Put it away. Don't enjoy it now. But if you can enjoy it now for God's glory, then there's a chance that you'll only be able to enjoy it forever. I'm all for not putting our stories and our fandoms and all of that fun stuff that we enjoy into a box, the secular box, that stuff we presume is going to burn and not last forever, and then putting all the spiritual stuff in another box. I believe that scripture shows that God is sovereign over everything. There's no stray molecule, no stray good idea over which he does not claim ownership. It's his world, we're just living in it, and nothing in scripture says he's going to roast it irreversibly. If he does roast it, if uh, the elements literally dissolve, then he can rewind the clock and bring it back. I really look forward to seeing that. I really look forward to finding out what makes the cut, and I really hope that the things that I do are going to make the cut. After the fire purge, I think that any Christian who creates stuff can look forward to that and just imagine the kinds of stories and amazing adventures that we'll get to enjoy forever and ever. Real world adventures for sure, but hey, maybe we want to rest and imagine the adventures that uh, others have gone on in fiction. Either way, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait for it, but let's get started now. Uh, that We can't get there without going through here first and anything amazing that goes on there can also echo back into the present, which is really what this is about. It's about loving and honoring and obeying King Jesus even more now, so that once we get there, we'll have gotten that practice in. We'll be used to the idea that he is sovereign over everything, including the stories that we love. Well, this has been a really enlightening discussion. It's made me think of this quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, one day you will be old enough to read fairy tales again. What a wonderful thing to think about, that the older we grow, the more we can enjoy stories. It's not the opposite. So now we'd like to turn to our fantastic fans, hear a little bit about what they want to say. First, I'm going to read a comment from Aaron Serb, who subscribed to our YouTube channel. So you can go to YouTube and search for Lorehaven. And right now it's mostly just these episodes of Fantastical Truth, but we will be having more content there in the future. So subscribe now and you know get in early. But Aaron says, quote, this is awesome. One of your first subscribers. I'll try to stick with you to the end. God bless, end quote. Well, thank you, Aaron. We're so glad to have you along. Uh, thank you for finding us and let us know your thoughts on one of these episodes. And if I'm right, you'll actually get to stick with us to the end and beyond. That's right. <laughs> and hopefully we have uh, some eternally significant <laughs> content here. Yes. Uh, next, we have a quote from a Sherry C. This comes from Facebook, where she made a comment on one of our posts about episode five. And she commented on how we'd had a discussion about movie scenes that might, might not make it to the new earth. Sherry says, quote, I know I'm late commenting on this, but I'm just now listening to this episode. I really appreciate your perspective on this issue. I also really appreciated what you both said about not completely throwing out the caution towards Hollywood content that is preached in more conservative churches, end quote. Thank you, Sherry, for sending us that comment. 
And to you, our listener, what stories do you hope will just maybe make it into the new earth? Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on social media at lorehaven. And of course, you can go to lorehaven.com and send us a comment there. You can also subscribe for free to the magazine at lorehaven.com. We have a new issue each season of the year. It's a quarterly digital magazine. Print copies are available at special events, and you can actually order them at the website too if you really like print. But of course, uh, right now, we're not having a lot of special events, at least not in the real world. So retreat to the virtual world, and you can find in each Lorehaven issue the best uh, Christian-made novels reviewed, including the stories that we hope will withstand that test that we were talking about and pass through the fire. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast, by the way, in late April, uh, as we record, we have a few days left in the month. Hurry up and subscribe fast, because at the end of this month, we're going to choose two random subscribers. Uh, They will get a a download code for Tosca Lee's pandemic thriller novel, The Line Between, which we reviewed in our spring 2019 issue. You don't want to miss that. Definitely some timely, chilling, but ultimately encouraging and deeply human reading about uh, one woman's quest to to discover the source of another sort of pandemic going on. In our next Fantastical Truth episode, we are joined by novelist Randall Ingermanson. He has not only written a couple of really good space travel novels back in the early 2000s, but we also explore his chief love, which is uh, being the Tom Clancy of first century Jerusalem. You didn't know they had one of those, did you? Well, they do. And it's Randy Ingermanson. So what we're talking about is his novel Oxygen, which I really enjoyed back in the early 2000s. But we also get into exploring his new series called Crown of Thorns, starring the hero of heroes, Jesus Christ. Book one, Son of Mary, just released around Palm Sunday. We haven't read that book yet, though, but we want to. So we're going to ask him about that and also explore his two science fiction novels with John B. Olson from a few years ago about a mission to Mars gone terribly wrong. Uh, Oxygen, by the way, Zach, we just reviewed that in that recent Lorehaven magazine issue and a story about the best of Christian fantasy. So we'll allude to that review and ask Randy a bit about his uh, novelist's journey there, his past, present, and future. For now, though, listeners, please go ye therefore into the world that King Jesus already owns. Share the gospel, and while you're doing that, look at all the stories that you love with an eye toward eternity. Does it make you sin? Then put it away. If it helps you glorify God more, hang on to it and realize that Jesus might just also decide to hang on to it. One way or another, though, we're going to keep pursuing this eternal mission to seek and find fantastical truth.